0: Malachi chapter two. If you've got a Bible, please turn there with me. If you don't, we've got some in the back that we would love for you to use and or take home if you need one. Grab one and turn to chapter two. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time in review today because there's a lot to get into in these few verses that we're going to look at, but God has been using Malachi. What does his name mean? My messenger. Okay. To, to really forcefully Explain to the priests how they've profaned the covenant that God has made with them. And you remember last week, we used the word, especially in our kids' time, dung a lot. If you look back at those verses, first nine verses or so, it said, God's saying, the excrement from your sacrifices, I'm not pleased with. In fact, I'm gonna rub it on your faces. Now that's pretty graphic, guys, but that's what he's saying. He's making it very clear. I'm not pleased with what's going on. Your offerings, stop it. In fact, he says, I'd rather you shut the doors and cut it out than to keep offering me second best, your leftovers. So in our text for today, Malachi, he points not necessarily to the priestly duties, but he points to something more that we all identify with. It's marriage, home life. Marriage and home life are, in fact, we could use the word the victim here. They are paying the price for the kind of worship that Israel and the priests have been giving. And now it's affecting everyone. So look at chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. We'll read those and then pray and ask God's blessing on our time together. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Verse 13, And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, Because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's pray. Lord, it doesn't matter what era of world history we find ourselves in. We need to hear these words. Because from almost the beginning, certainly since sin has entered the picture, men's hearts are led astray. Women's hearts are led astray. And the enemy still uses some of those same old tricks to deceive us and to tempt us and to cause us to think other things are better for us than what you have given. And so I pray that you would correct our thinking and that that correction in our thinking corrects Not just our behavior, though I do pray that it would, but Lord, may it affect the the landscape of our homes and our communities and our nation and the world. Because disobedience has far-reaching consequences, as we'll see, Lord. So teach us today from your word, in Christ's name, amen. So look at the first question, right? This Malachi is, is sort of like a dialogue, if you will. It's different than any of the other prophetic books. And it's almost like this dialogue. And so there in verse 10, it's kind of a rhetorical question. Hey, don't we all have the same father? Isn't God the same God who's created us? Isn't he our, our father altogether? So he, he's saying, Jews, my people, listen. God has created you for his own possession. Aren't we all part of the same family? Your wives, your husbands, aren't they sons and daughters of God? Just as much as you are. Now, I, I think there's some significance in the pronouns that are used here because Malachi switches from saying you priests" to now he's including himself. He says we Why are we all faithless to one another? There's a lot of collective terms here. So this message is for all of Israel. It's not just the the priests who are messing up. It's all of Israel. And Malachi kind of lumps himself in there. And I think he uses the word create intentionally. He says, has not one God created us? Okay, I think he was trying to stress yet again, just like at the very beginning of the book in in verse 2, where the Israelite nation came from, how the people of God got their start because he loved them because he loves his people. He's called them as his own. He's made covenants with them. Remember he could have chosen Esau. That was, that was that first part of chapter one. He could have chosen him, but he chose Jacob to show his power, to show his deliverance. He chose Jacob. He chose Israel and so all of Israel has one origin, one creator God, and therefore they should have been intimately related to one another, loving one another, caring for each other. So what's the point? Why, why emphasize one creator father? Well, I think it's the same thing, that, partially at least, the same things that we teach our children today, especially if you have more than one, especially if you have boy and girl in the same family group. What, guys, what do we tell our, our sons In regards to their sisters, son, you look out for them, right? And I know we do this with our, between sisters and between brothers as well, but you look out for them. You don't let people mistreat them. You stick up for them. Don't let people take advantage of them. And certainly don't you take advantage of them. And that seems to be the hardest part maybe in sibling rivalry. Don't you take advantage of them either. Look out for him. You know, having the same father, it should have created this like family atmosphere. You're my brother. I love you. I don't want to take advantage of you. I don't want to see others take advantage of you. And so we're going to look out for one another. But what was happening? It was so far off from what was really happening. Look at, look at verse 10 again. They were faithless to one another. And in doing so, the end of verse 10 says that they were profaning or they profaned the covenant of their fathers. So the Israelites are all brothers and sisters, but they were sinning against each other, breaking the covenant with God and with one another and offending their common father. Okay? The ESV says, why are we faithless to one another? Other translations you might have says, why do we betray one another? Why do we deal treacherously with each other? Or why are we unfaithful to each other? Look at verse 10. He says here, he says, Judah has been faithless and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. So he's still, he's still showing there's a violation of trust here. There's, there's a problem. Judah has been faithless, but he's still not really said why, what it is. Beginning of verse 11, abomination has been committed. In Israel and Jerusalem. Okay, so it's a big deal. Guys, we don't use the word abomination lightly. Scripture certainly doesn't either. Abomination has been committed. Judah's been faithless. Okay, the, the charges are racking up now. And what does he say? Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. And here's, here's the condemnation. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, that varies in translation. But this is the accusation that's being made against the priests and the people, specifically the men of Israel, of Judah. They, they were doing something that they shouldn't. They were abandoning and or divorcing their Jewish wives, what he calls the wives of their youth. They were divorcing or abandoning them, or both in favor of marrying outside of the Jewish nation. That's what was going on. That was the abomination. That is how Judah has been faithless or has dealt treacherously With one another, within the group. Now the Hebrew word for this dealt treacherously or been unfaithful is a Hebrew word bagad. Okay? And it literally means to cover up, to deal deceitfully with, to abandon or desert or forsake. That's what, that's what many of the men in Israel were doing with their wives. They were abandoning and forsaking them. It also holds the the tune of being a traitor, of going against, of breaking the covenant and going back on your word. You have violated your alliance or you have betrayed something or someone. If you look up treacherous in the dictionary, it means someone who is likely to betray trust. So the men and priests of Israel had Begun to earn this reputation. They were untrustworthy. They were dealing treacherously with one another. The Israelite people, uh, like I said, especially the men who should have been leading their households, proved that they couldn't be trusted. They were abandoning and forsaking their wives, leaving them in favor of women from the surrounding nations. And so he says, this message is for Israel, but it still includes the priests too, doesn't it? How would, someone, how would a man in Israel have obtained a right of divorce? Through the priests. How would a man in Israel marry another woman? Through the priests. And so the priests are obviously involved in all of this. And Malachi has gone to great lengths to show how the priests have broken their covenant with God. And now now we see the trickle-down effect in the people. The priests have been abandoning their covenant, breaking it, and now we see it in the people as well. And in case you're wondering, just, you know, cause we maybe run to this sometimes. In case you're wondering, the Israelite guys aren't just sitting there being like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't know about that law. I didn't know I shouldn't do that. They knew. Let me give you some information here. Ezra, one of the contemporaries of Malachi and Nehemiah, two chapters devoted to it. Chapter nine in Ezra. He he tears his clothes when he finds out that this is going on, intermarriage with other nations. He tears his clothes, and he pleads with God, falls on his face and pleads with God to have mercy on the Israelite nation. He says, you would be right to destroy us, but have mercy. In in chapter 10 of Ezra, he leads then the whole nation in repentance, in falling on their knees and in breaking away from being joined with ungodly nations through intermarriage, with those who are not God's people, when Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem, he found out this was still a big problem. In fact, he said half the kids there in Jerusalem they don't even speak the Jewish language anymore; they speak um, they speak the the language of Moab and Ashdod and Amnon. If you, just dot, jot down on a piece of paper, Nehemiah thirteen twenty five. This blew me away. <laughs> When I read this, see how Nehemiah, Nehemiah responded to intermarriage. It's—I'll give you a, a clue. It's not gentle. It's not gentle. Nehemiah thirteen twenty-five. Before these guys showed up and explained that this is a bad idea, God had told His people very long ago not to intermarry, and maybe more importantly, why. Okay, Exodus thirty-four is a is a great longer explanation of why, but it's summed up really well in Deuteronomy 7 verses 3 and 4. He says very clearly this, this is God to Israel. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. And here's the why. For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. That's, that's pretty clear, right? This is precisely what I think Malachi is referring to in chapter 2 as an abomination. This was what was happening. And it was not okay. He was reminding God's people, you've failed to live up to the covenant that God has made with you. Disobedience to God has consequences. We've said this several times in Malachi already. And Nehemiah even mentions that Solomon, this guy that we put up there as one of the wisest Guys in the world, certainly in scripture, and yet he was led astray by this very thing. Nehemiah thirteen twenty six. he's talking about Solomon and he says he was beloved by God and yet he was still led astray into sin on account of such women, it says. Seems that in God's eyes, what was going on in Israel was an act of treason, betrayal, In the King James Version, verse 11 says that they profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved. They were violating and desecrating the intimate bond with God as their father, as their one creator. And they were desecrating themselves in the process since they were to be the dwelling place of the Lord. Nehemiah 13, 29 puts it this way. Remember them, oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood. He's talking about the priests here. They've desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. It's plenty clear. The priests are guilty in all of this, but the people were also guilty of breaking the covenant and desecrating themselves through their deceit, their betrayal and their unfaithfulness. Go back to to uh, Malachi chapter two, verse 12 with me. It says, May the Lord God cut off from the tents of Jacob, any descendant of the man who does this who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. So the problem with the the people was the same problem that the priests had, that they didn't really fear God. They didn't really fear God. This is, if you're taking notes, here's a big idea to take away. When the desires of the flesh outweigh our fear of the Lord, it always leads to sin. Every time. When the desires of the flesh Outweigh our fear of the Lord, the result is always sin. Now, some translations of verse twelve refer to the master and the scholar. Um, some other translations refer to him that waketh and him that answereth. There, this is sort of a confusing part we 're not exactly sure what 's being referred to here, but w- the main point is is pretty clear it 's the same idea, regardless of who you are, priest, people, scholar normal person, someone who watches, maybe a watchman on the tower, or just the person who's sleeping, no matter who you are, you will be excluded from community or from home with God's people if you do this. We can't interpret that part of this any other way. Like, this is a big deal. You want to maintain your standing with God? You want to continue living in the home that you have, you need to change. You need to repent, is what he's saying. By your conscious disobedience and irreverence, you are forfeiting your place among God's people. Now, I think the reference to an offering at the end of verse 12 kind of leads us into verse 13. I think it's related there. Look at verse 13 with me. And this second thing you do, so now here's another charge against them. You cover the Lord's altar with tears weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Okay. Um, As I, as I was studying this week, a lot of the commentators I was reading were saying that the, the tears on the altar of the Lord were possibly the tears of the abandoned Jewish wives who were coming and weeping over their broken home, their broken relationship. Um, But I'm not, I'm not sure that I would read it that way uh, based on, just the question, well, why would God abandon these sacrifices or not receive the sacrifices of Israelite women who were just victims in this? So I'm not sure that we can think about it this way. Although tears on the altar is not a new thing. If you think of, of Hannah in first Samuel, right? She's got, her husband has two wives. She's barren. Her other wife is not. Her other wife continually makes fun of her for this. And so she's weeping on the altar uh, to the Lord to have a child. And he grants that, but that would make sense here, but I I don't think God is saying I don't receive the offerings of of the women who are crying on the altar. I think it's a different idea altogether. I think what's going on here is that the men and the priests were bringing their offerings like normal, their half-hearted offerings, right? The sick and the lame and all of these things, and they were giving it to the Lord. And God is saying, "I'm not accepting your offering." And they're saying, Well, why not? And they're weeping and saying, well, the Lord has abandoned me. And, And they're making all these charges against God and they don't see their role in it. I think this fits with Malachi's pretty harsh critique so far that the priests and the people had become apathetic and ritualistic in their worship. And it was just disconnected from any fear of God at all. And now it's trickled down into their relationships with one another. Here's another big idea to to maybe mark down and think through our issues with God problems here eventually become problems here. You know what I mean? And sometimes it doesn't take very long at all. I mean, you think back to the garden and sin and the first children and first murder. It doesn't take long for if there's a problem with us and God, it becomes a problem with us and others very quickly. And oftentimes it affects those in our home first. And if you're married, oftentimes it affects your spouse first. Eventually, it will become a problem with one another. I said this at the beginning, maybe in our introduction to Malachi. It's this, when you get apathetic in your spiritual life, it will affect your physical life, your relationships as well. Or to say it another way, wrong theology, what you believe about God, affects your life. Wrong theology leads to wrong living. These guys should have known that ritualistic offerings devoid of any heart change is not what God wanted. Caleb read Psalm 51 to us today. We prayed through that. This is what he says in verse 17 of that chapter. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. This is the offering that should have been given. Not just ritualistic, half-hearted, leftover worship. A broken heart. Their heartless offerings are being rejected by God, and so they weep and they complain and they groan that God is harsh in his treatment of them. Sometimes these sacrifices um, were offered without any fear of the Lord oftentimes. I mean, that's, I think, what drove their half-hearted worship. They didn't really know God. But what kind of sacrifice is God saying he wants? He wants full heart involvement. He wants a penitent and a broken heart. And this results in restored communion with God. David in that Psalm 51 says, restore to me the joy of my salvation. My sin has separated me. My sin has broken that that promise, that communication with God that I've made, their religious activities amounted to zero in God's sight. It was not godly sorrow, as Second Corinthians uh, chapter seven talks about. Paul brings this up. He said, "Godly sorrow results in what? Sorrow and repentance, a change in your life. That's what real sorrow is. But worldly sorrow." is what happens when there is no spirit of God involved and it drives people like Cain to do things like he did. Verse 14, Malachi 2, but you say, why does he not accept our offerings? They didn't get it. They didn't see or they couldn't see the truth through their rebellion. Their clouds were just so blinded and, or their their hearts rather and minds were so clouded by their disobedience and their rebellion and their selfishness that they couldn't see right and wrong objectively anymore do you think we ever get this way please don't raise your hand if you've ever gotten this way but i'd venture to guess that many in this room have we have fallen into a pattern of sin of negligence of apathy And now we can't even see how wrong it is. It's normal. Do you think the world thinks this way? It's normal. It's not normal according to God, though, brothers and sisters. We can see, man, things aren't going well in my life. What is going on? Why has God left me? We get caught in sin and we... See, our life is in disarray. Things are not going well, but we put the blame on somebody else, anyone else. God even, oftentimes. surely not my fault. And we say, God, why? Why have you done this to me? Why do I feel like you're so far away? Why aren't my prayers being answered the way that I think that they should be? And we forget the same thing that the Israelites forgot that God will remind them of at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 6. You can scan over And look at what the Lord reminds us of. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Brothers and sisters, you've heard this before, but I'll say it again to you. God has not left you. You've likely moved from him. God maintains the covenant. God fulfills the covenant. We're the ones who break it. Well, how had the Israelites broken the covenant? Look at verse 14 and 15. Because the Lord, they say, well, how? How have we done this? Why aren't you accepting our offerings? He says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless, though she's your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? So many of them had broken their covenant commitment to their wives, which meant that they'd broken a covenant with God. Notice the value. I'm going to pause just here for a few minutes. We could preach a lot of sermons about marriage from this. I'm not going to do that. We're going to continue moving, but I do want to pause for a moment and just let's note the value that God places on the marriage union because it's significant. It's important. It says he makes them one. We, we hear this in Genesis 2. He makes them one with a portion of his spirit in their union. Guys, the marriage union is about so much more than a piece of paper That you come away with. That says you're married. It's about so much more than the day that you actually say your vows. It's about so much more than those things. Don't miss what God is saying. He adds something to the marriage here. What does he add? Himself. Is that a cool thought? Have you, have you considered that? I hope this was sort of thing was shared at your wedding ceremony. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But it should be at every wedding ceremony, especially if the, the couple knows Jesus, right? God is putting himself as a part of this marriage union. Now, this is why if you've been to a wedding and they do the court of three strands, that's the symbol of that idea is that God is there. It's not just husband and wife that day. There's a third party here, guys, and it's, and it's God involved in there. And so they get twisted together where it's one. And and I think it's Ecclesiastes says a cord of three strands is not easily broken. That's the idea behind all of this. This has been God's design in marriage from the beginning. Here's Genesis two, verse 24. Therefore you've heard this probably at a wedding before a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. God was an intimate part of the covenant commitments between the men and women in the Jewish nation. He was a part of the marriage unions between the priests and their wives. He is a part of our marriages as well. But many of the men and the priests had forsaken their wives. That's the point of this. They had abandoned and betrayed them. Remember, a a treasonous act And they had done this in order to marry women from neighboring people groups, which we just looked at is was a specifically dangerous thing because it would pull them away from worshiping the one true God. And it did that. Every single time you see them marry outside of God's own group, it leads them to worship other gods. Judges is just a cycle of this pattern over and over. God in His mercy sends judges, but the people in their rebellion did what was wrong in the sight of God over and over. Because that's our heart. God's answer is crystal clear. He's saying, this is why I don't like your offerings anymore. This is why I won't accept them. Because of your treachery towards one another. Even in the most sacred of relationships. Now, they were willing... To forsake and abandon their covenant with God and now it was spilling over into their homes and it was having a dramatic effect on their marriages and on their families. Husband, wife, and God are covenanted together in marriage. And so we lift the institution of marriage high for that reason because God is in the midst. And what does he say in verse 15? The second part of 15, what was the major, one of the major purposes in God bringing husband and wife together? That's what it says. that's the question. And what was the one God seeking? What's the answer? Very simple, godly offspring, right? Go back and look at the beginning of Genesis. God's first command to Adam and Eve was not don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What was the first command that God gave? Be fruitful and multiply. Okay? Husband, wife, be fruitful and multiply. But it's not just about having a whole gaggle of kids. It's not just about cranking out the babies. Okay? this is, I love what Bodie Bauckham says about this. He says, this involves more than just simply having babies. God doesn't mean for us to just have children and for them to just be let loose in the world. The intended purpose of procreation is that we would represent God on the earth. God gave us children so that we would raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So if God is intimately involved in the union between husband and wife, that's been made clear, well then you better believe that he is intimately involved in the birth of any children as well. Ephesians 5, I I gotta go there, it, it teaches us that Marriage isn't only about children, though, about having kids. Love and intimacy between husband and wife is also designed to communicate something to the world. And if I've I've done your wedding, I've talked about Ephesians chapter 5, and what your marriage is supposed to be a picture of. It's a picture of Christ and his bride, right? His church. Husbands, we're supposed to mimic the sacrificial love of Christ, he gave himself up. We're supposed to give up our desires, our time, our hobbies, to love our wives better, more completely. So guys, you could have a dozen kids, and there'd be some respect you need for that alone, okay? But you could have a dozen kids and still fall short of God's intended design for marriage and for the family. If your love for your wife doesn't reflect Christ's love for his people, it still falls short. And you can have zero kids and still be a bright, shining example of how Christ feels about his bride if you love your spouse as God instructs. So just, just to be clear in this discussion, having children, being fruitful and multiplying in that way isn't the only purpose that God has for your marriage. Married person? If you have kids, it is a purpose to see the glory of God. But if you don't, that's not the only purpose. But for those who God blesses with children, knowing God's purpose for having children should be a major major motivation in how we raise those kids. Not just to let them loose in the world, like Vodibacum says, but they would train them up in the admonition and fear of the Lord. Paul says there in Ephesians 5 that marriage is something both beautiful and mysterious because it pictures Christ's love for his bride. And Malachi says that marriage should be guarded and married hearts should be guarded so that we don't become faithless. So don't miss God's purpose in marriage. Please don't minimize it and certainly don't mistreat it in your marriage. So men, if I could talk with us for just a moment, I think we need to take these words to heart. When he says, in the middle of verse 15, at the end of verse 15, what does he say? So guard yourselves. What does he say at the very last line of verse 16? So guard yourselves. Do you think the pattern, the repetition is significant? Because I think it is guard yourself however you need to do that whatever safeguards you need to put in place whatever encouragement you need from another brother guard yourself guard your heart in relation to your marriage read Ephesians 5 again and love your wife the way God instructs and if you're if you if you find that you're not doing that if you find that you're not loving your wife the right way, and maybe you need help getting back on track, please come and talk with myself or another one of the elders. Part of what our responsibility here is at church is to build strong families. And so we want to encourage you. We want to challenge you. We want to hold you accountable. Think about this. This There's an interesting thought. Couldn't God have made more than one woman for Adam? Or... Or do we think after all the days of creation and after he created Eve, he was like, man, I'm too tired to do anything else. I don't think so. I think if God wanted to, he could have made more. Why did you only create one woman for Adam? I think the answer is hopefully obvious at this point because one man and one woman with God in the midst, with God leading, was his plan all along to demonstrate faithful love within his family, to demonstrate what faithful love should look like within our families and within the world and to the world. It was to produce offspring that will carry on demonstrating the love of God properly, both received from God and love towards God in the world. This is God's plan. But when man gets a hold of something without the spirit of God, we, we tend to warp it. Look at verse 16. It has consequences he says he says, Guard yourselves in verse sixteen for the man who does not love his wife, who has not guarded himself, but divorces her, mistreats her, abandons her, deals treacherously with her, says, the Lord God of hosts covers his garment with violence, it says he covers his garment with violence now during Jewish weddings, there was uh, an act that the, the husband, the groom would do, and ceremonially he would go over and he would actually lay a garment over his bride to symbolize the protection that he was offering to her and their family, their, the family that they were going to be building. We see Ruth talk with Boaz about this. She says in Ruth chapter 3, verse 9, spread your wings, that word means the corners of a garment, spread your wings over me, for you are a redeemer. She's asking for that covering, that protection. Speaking of Jerusalem, God says through Ezekiel in chapter 16, verse 8, I spread the corner of my garment over you and cover your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord. And listen to this. And you became mine. But now, things have Devolved from that perfect kind of demonstration. Now, their garments weren't covered with protection, with the joy that would come with a wedding ceremony. What are they covered with? Violence. Through betrayal, through abandonment and divorce. Guys, even in our world today, when a wife is forsaken or mistreated, oftentimes when they're divorced, a man covers his own garment with violence still today. This is because the husband and the wife, what do we say? Are one with the Lord. And you can't mistreat your wife without bringing misery and destruction on yourself as well at some point. And this is why in Ephesians 5, Paul says that husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. They're not not—they're going to give every their body everything they want and need. Treat your wives the same way, he says there. Instead of spreading their, wa- their garment over their wives to protect them, they cover their garments with violence toward their wives, with intermarriage, with divorce, with abandonment. It's clear this is not the way. this is not the way. and Malachi warns them now for the second time. he says, "Take heed. Guard yourselves. Pay attention. Guard yourselves. guard your spirits." Don't do this sort of thing. Guard yourself diligently to refrain from such godless deeds and practices. I don't have to run through all of the statistics of what happens in divorces. You guys have all been touched by them in some way. I don't have to share the statistics of what happens to kids in broken homes. You guys have heard those. You know it. You see it. Maybe it's happened to you. God's wonderful plan for marriage is one woman and one wife for as long as they both shall live. And so, here's some words of encouragement. Here's some challenges just to recap today. Number one, be faithful in your marriages. I don't have anything else to say about that. Be faithful in your marriages. Number two, raise your children as an expression of God's love. Not just how you love them, but also how you train them to love. Number three, I'll expand this to wives as well. Guard your hearts in relation to your spouse. Guard your hearts. You've been married for more than a couple of months. You know bitterness can take root easily. And then slow fades happen. Guard your hearts Because abandoning the truth regarding marriage and the home we know has dire consequences. The truth is, we can only love our children, we can only love our spouses, we can only love others and God himself properly because God first loved us. I cannot hope to love my wife if I don't love God more than her. Same goes for you. You cannot hope to love your spouse if you don't love God more than them. And if you've got a a spouse that is pushing you to follow Jesus, they don't want you to love them more than God. Right? They want you to love Jesus more than them. So be faithful in your marriages. Raise your children as an expression of God's love and guard your hearts in relation to your spouse. If you find that your love maybe has a term we would put it in our culture, has grown cold. Maybe you think that you are falling out of love with them. Could I just encourage you, be reminded of the great love that God has for you in Christ. And if he has joined you together in marriage, he wants to be right there in your midst. Look into your own heart. Admit your great need for his love and then look to the cross where God's love through Christ was perfectly displayed. That's that's where we're going to be able to forgive our spouses in relation to what Christ did on the cross. That's how we can forgive when we realize how much we have been forgiven. So how do we treat our wives and our husbands? Well, we treat them as we As God says. Read Ephesians 5 again. Look through these texts again. The question is, how can, how can we do the opposite? How can we treat our wives and husbands with violence and neglect when we see the price that was paid for our own redemption? How can we continue on doing this, brothers and sisters? We can't. Guard your hearts. Guard your spirits. May we ask God to do the same that we would not be found faithless would you pray with me lord without your spirit i can plead with my own heart and with the hearts of my brothers and sisters this morning i can plead all day long to not abandon their spouses to not mistreat them to raise children that honor and fear you but lord if your spirit is not moved in a heart they have no capacity to do those things. They cannot love properly because they have not known your love for them. And so I pray that they would see your great love demonstrated on the cross, the sacrifice of Christ for them. And Lord, as we see that, as that comes into view, as it becomes clearer and clearer, it may be foggy, it may be blurry at the moment, but as that becomes clearer and clearer, Lord, we realize I cannot treat my spouse this way. Because God did not treat me this way. He gave me everything I need for life and godliness through Christ. So may we guard our hearts, Lord. You do that as well. And we're so thankful that you give us the Spirit. You've come in and you've told us that if we are yours, we've been made new. A new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And so, Lord, may we walk by the Spirit, in the Spirit, for your glory. And Lord, may it start with our spouse. And may it then continue on into our homes and into our communities and into the world. Lord, we thank you for this encouragement to love as you have loved, to be faithful as you are faithful. But Lord, knowing that even when we are faithless, you remain faithful. For that, we give you the thanks and the praise. In Christ's name, amen.